The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, how's everybody doing? I'm doing all right. On a scale of 1 to 10, I've been giving myself a 6 today on a scale of 1 to 10, but we're doing all right. Hey, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Heritage Christian Fellowship. We're really glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. We, we've been uh, working since kind of summertime. We started studying the book of 1 John. We're calling the series Walk in Light, Beloved. And when we chose to teach this book, I knew we were going to teach it in about eight weeks. And, and, and John's letter here, 1 John, towards the end of the New Testament, it is such a complex book. It, it, it was way more complex than I anticipated. And today as I looked at my preaching text, I, I was reminded this week that there's different ways you can, preach, you can preach a biblical text. There's different elevations, if you will. You can get really down low and you can work on all the unique topography of a specific verse, specific text. You can, you can kind of preach a text, maybe like at mid-range, where you can see some of the nuance. And I think that's kind of what we're trying to do with this text, this sermon series here, is, is kind of work through First John relatively quickly while paying attention to the uniqueness and, and the way this letter contributes to the rest of, of the New Testament. But I got to say, today's passage, uh, verse 10 of chapter 3 through verse 6 of chapter 4, it is really hard to preach this text in a, in a week. It's really three sermons in one, so I'm just going to talk way faster than I normally do. I'm going to preach uh, three sermons in one right here, right now. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to, to 1 John chapter 3. What we're going to do today is I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to read through the whole text. It's rather long. And then I'll teach through it, kind of go back and just grab some verses as we kind of work through the passage. And there's going to be three points that I want you to see as we work through it. 1 John 3, verse 10 through chapter 4, verse 6. By this it is evident we are children of God, and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. Verse 11. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the devil, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you, for we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees a brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandment abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Before you close, before I pray, I just want you to notice a couple things really quick that are going to frame our discussion. If you look at verse 11 in chapter 3, I want you to notice that, that John says, for this is the message you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. He's talking about a message. Again, chapter 5 of verse 1, he talks about the message that he heard, that God is light. And here he's saying, here's the message you have heard to love one another. So he's talking about a message that our ears hear. Go all the way down to verse 6 of chapter 4. He says, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. You see, the top and tail of our text is a message is spoken, and we are to listen to that message. Sandwiched in between are the points of our sermon today. And we're going to see as we unpack this text that there's three big ideas that we're supposed to see in this passage. We're supposed to see that, that love is the mark of the Christian. We see that in verses 10 through 18. Secondly, we're supposed to see that we can have confidence before God. We'll see that in the middle section there towards the end of chapter 3. Then in chapter 4, we're going to see where John is admonishing us as Christians to know error and to know truth, to understand those things. So those are the three points. We're going to unpack them. And there's a lot at stake here. Last week when, when, when Mike Robinson taught, he helped us see the, the, the duality of First John. John kind of tends to write in these extremes, these black and white ways. And what he's saying is like we ought to listen to this message that he is proclaiming that we might be found in God and not in Satan in Christ and not in the Antichrist, that we might be of the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of Satan. There's a lot at stake here. That we might be found in righteousness and not sin. Those who love, not those who hate. Life, not death. Good, not evil. Truth, not lies. That we might confess Christ as Lord, not deny Christ as Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we unpack this text, as we look at these, these different movements in the passage, God, we, we know that you inspired the Apostle John 2,000 years ago to write this pastoral letter to a church that was dealing with some difficulty, that was watching people leave and false Christs being presented. And so, God, we know that you inspired John to write this text for them then. But, God, in your infinite wisdom, you inspired John to write that text for us today as well. So, God, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to respond in obedience to the things that you're revealing in this passage today. God, we ask you to have your way with us today. Move in this place. God, may we encounter you. And God, as we walk out this door, may we walk out this door as men and women who have worshipped you, who are ready to engage the world. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the word for listen in here is the same word. In, in the Greek, but, but in, in the way I think about listening and hearing, it's, this is, you know, Paul's interpretation. It's kind of, there's hearing and there's listening. Did your mom ever have this conversation with you? She's like, I know you're hearing me, but are you listening to me? You know, my mom would always, you know, give us a list of things to do. 
weed the radishes. We always had to weed the garden. Are you listening to me? Yes, mom. Look me in the eyes. I need to know you hear. There's a difference between listening and just kind of hearing. Hearing is just letting something fall in our ears without real consideration. Uh, and this is going to have dire consequences. A couple years ago, I, t- I took a couple of guys, three guys, backpacking in Montana's Builder, uh, Bitterroot Cellular Wilderness area. And it's an area I know pretty well. I, I spent a lot of time back there, but it was a new area where I wanted to climb a new summit I'd never climbed before. It was a mountain called uh, uh, Ranger Peak. And there was this little book that I had, some guy had written who hit all these, all these summits. And so I, I perused the chapter on that mountain, that particular ascent. So I kind of had a generic idea of how to get up top, but I wasn't that concerned about it. And I didn't really listen to what the guy said. I sort of just kind of heard the words as I read through it. And so I get this guy uh, who wants to climb. The other two guys wanted to have a spa day at the lake. So me and the courageous guy, we go up. And we're climbing up, and I'm like, oh, man, I get up there, and it's pretty gnarly. And I'm like... I really wish I had listened to what that guy wrote in that book. Dang it. So I'm trying to make my way up there. And I thought I remembered at some point he says you have to kind of bear to the south and hit this ridge line and go north. And so I start bearing to the south. And you know, have you ever just kind of been hiking if you're an outdoorsman? And all of a sudden you just kind of pause and you realize you're not where you should be. I'm hiking with this poor guy named Don, never been in the mountains in his entire life, never been in the West in his entire life, and I'm walking, and all of a sudden, all my spider senses, all my, my sense of self-preservation kicks in, and I'm like, where am I? And I'm on this slick rock, you know, just slick rock, and it's like 200 feet down to the tree line, probably 100 feet up to where it gets flat, and I'm on this little crack, kind of in the middle of the slick rock, and about the time my heart says, you're in danger, Don says, I'm not loving this, man. <laughs> I'm like, like, me neither. Uh, uh, and so I say, hey, Don... If, if you start to fall, just kind of spread out like a cat so you don't tumble. He's like, what? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know how we got out of there. But the whole time I was telling myself I really should have listened to what that guy said when I read that book. If you don't listen, you can find yourself in trouble. To listen is to pay close attention to what's being said. And I wonder in your life, as you think back over the course of your life, have you ever heard a message but failed to listen to it? Maybe someone gave you instructions to get somewhere, but you found yourself lost out on the road saying, why didn't I listen more carefully? Maybe someone warned you of a potentially catastrophic scenario, but your behavior didn't change after the warning and you got struck with catastrophe. Maybe you heard a message that offended you or didn't sit well with you, so you disregarded the message only to find out that the message was for you, and you later on had to deal with the consequences of not heeding that message. Or or maybe... Probably most commonly, I think sometimes in life we're just distracted when messages are spoken. Our minds are elsewhere. We, we live in such a hyper, overstimulated culture. It's like, it's so hard for us just to pause, put our phones down, turn off our brains long enough to just hear what's being said in front of us. And so we fall into passivity. I think about when I was a kid going to church, and um, I was so hyperactive, man. Um, you think I talk fast now? Oh my gosh. When I became a teacher for a couple of years, I got these kids that were kind of like me, and I was like, I was calling back my teachers 20 years early. I'm so sorry for the way I treated you. I have, I'm teaching these kids now that are crazy. It was bad. And I would go to church, and I would, you know, it's like I would do everything, but I would hear the want, 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 want of the preacher, but I'm looking at the bald spot of the guy in front of me. I'm counting how many times the, the ceiling fan goes around. I'm trying to count the tiles in the ceiling. It was just begging my mom for some candy out of her purse or whatever. I just couldn't hear a word. It was, I was just this, I wasn't even passive listening. I wasn't even paying attention to anything. I, I wasn't I just didn't hear anything. I didn't pay attention. And I wonder, when we come to church, I know there's a lot going on in our lives, and I know that, you know, there's flawed people who stand up on the stage, and we're trying to hear the words of God through the the human messengers. And, And I know that a lot of you, when you come in here, there's a lot going on in your life. Sometimes maybe you're just distracted. 
you got things going on, you got work you got to do, and your hearts and minds are maybe wandering a little bit. Maybe you're wondering what that little light is that goes up on the, the scoreboard each week. I don't know. I don't know. I, maybe you're tempted just to hear the wah, wah, wah of Pastor Paul. Um, and certainly I don't want to be heard, but I want you to hear God through me. That's why I do this. That's why I stand up here. Not because I think I have anything to offer of significance, but I think God has something tremendously important to say to us. And he says it to us through his word. There's a difference between hearing and listening. I think of Job. You know the story of Job. Tremendous suffering and loss in his life. All of his friends gave him horrible counsel. And at the end of the book of Job, God finally starts to speak to Job. Never really answers his afflictions, but he just says, God, don't you, Job, don't you know who I am? And he gives us all these pictures of how big God is. And here's what Job says at the end of the book. Job 42, verses 5 and 6. He says this to God. God, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. What does it look like for us not to just hear God by the tickling of the ear, but to see him? I think that's what John is saying when he says, listen to what I'm telling you. Three things John wants us to know today. In each of these three things that we see, I shared the points earlier, there's two tests under each point. Six times in our passage today, we see the phrase, by this. And there are these tests. By this, it is evident. By this, we know. By this, we shall know. And John is helping us as we consider these three points. He's giving us opportunity to test ourselves to see if we are living out these truths that he is sharing in his message. Here's the first thing I want you to write down. Love is the mark of the Christian. This is the first thing, first thing John wants us to know in verses 10 through 18. Love is the mark of the Christian. Verse 10 was part of last week's sermon, but really verse 11 and on are, are responding to what's said in verse 10. And so here's the first test if you look at verse 10. This is the first by this statement in our text. This is the test. By this, it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. What is the test? We'll look at the second part of the verse. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor does the one who does not love his brother. In other words, anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. Now, this is, a, this is John has been talking about love since we opened up this book. The mark of the Christian is love, which means the mark of the anti-Christian is the absence of love and the absence of righteous living. In verse 11, John tells us what he means by righteous living, at least partially. He says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that you should love one another, where there's this invitation to love, this command to love. This has been and will continue to be John's message. He's been talking about this since chapter 1. And if you look at the word love and how it appears, it appears more in 1 John and the Gospel of John than any other books of the Bible. John loves to use the word love. And it's to be the singular distinguishing marker of the Christian. According to Christ, the world will know the church by the love of the church. And so what does John do? Well, then he sets up this foil. He says, okay, so what's the antithesis of love? And he goes, takes us back to Genesis chapter 4. Cain. Cain is the opposite of love. He says in verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who, who was of the evil one, who murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? But because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So, so Cain is the example of what not to be. If you go back to Genesis chapter 4, you're probably familiar with the story. We preached this last fall, maybe early winter. Adam and Eve, first human beings, they fall, sin enters the world. Then we read in chapter 4, they have kids. And Cain and Abel are their kids. Abel brings a, an offering of animal to the Lord that's pleasing to the Lord. Cain brings some, some crops from the field that's not pleasing to the Lord. So the Lord is pleased with Abel. He's not pleased with Cain. Cain 
just gets whipped up into a jealous rage, and in his jealous rage, he murders his brother. And I think as I think about this murderer, Cain, and I think about the words of John, don't be like Cain. It's like, yeah, I'm not going to kill my brother. I don't think I've got to worry about being like Cain. It seems like this ridiculous example that, of course, I'm not going to be like Cain. But he talks about murder a little bit later, so keep that in your mind. I read this week that, that John indicates that his readers belong to the community of God's people who can expect to be persecuted. If you look at verse, verse 13, he says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So after talking about Cain, he's like, Oh yeah, by the way, Cain hated Abel, and the world's going to hate you too. The world's going to hate you. Just like Cain hated Abel, the world is going to hate you. It feels like this out-of-place statement, but what he's saying is that you're going to be persecuted as the church. It's going to happen. John clearly has in mind not just simply those outside the church who, who, who might persecute Christians, but also those within the church who don't really know the truth who are going to persecute Christians. This echoes the very teachings of Jesus. In John's gospel, he quotes Jesus as saying, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I think about that. You know, we're starting to deal with it. The culture war in America is so interesting right now. The shifts that are taking place in America, the radical shifts. We're, we're seeing things today that you wouldn't have ever guessed would have happened 15 years ago, looking into the future. We're seeing this radical shift. And for Christians in America, for the first time, maybe in our history, we're beginning to feel some real implications of honest persecution an honest attack. And we don't know what to do with it. It's like, how dare you? We don't, you can't say that about me and my faith. And I'm like, so was what we've experienced in America the exception or the rule? I think it's more of the exception. I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't do anything about it. What I'm saying is we should expect these sorts of things because we're not of the world. Those who are in Christ, those who are born again, we are told the world is not our home. We, we are sojourners here. And even as the world hates us, because it's going to hate us, and by the way, it's going to get worse. We know this. We're still called to love. Even as vile as the attacks may get, as angry as people may be against church and against, against Christians, we're still called to love one another and called to love our brothers. John puts it this way in verses 14 and 15. He says, Know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so that's hard. Because when he was saying, don't be like Cain the murderer, it's like, yeah, of course, I'm not going to be like Cain the murderer. But then when he says, if you hate your brother, you're a murderer, it's like, ugh, that's a little harder test. That's, that presses in a little bit more closely to home. The proof that a person possesses eternal life is that they have love for the brothers. But there's this blunt statement that if you hate your brother, you've You've committed murder. Like, that is hard. Jesus spoke about that in, in Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5. One, uh, one commentator named uh, Howard Marshall, kind of an expert on First John, I think what he said here was helpful. I want to read to you what, what, what Howard Marshall writes. He said, Hatred is to wish that the other person was not there. It is the refusal to recognize his rights as a person, the longing that he might be dead. He may not like to... He, we may not like to put the point quite so frankly, but it's good that the real character of hatred should be put so unambiguously on display so as to warn us against hatred. If I hate somebody, I'm no different from a murderer in my attitude toward him. Such a person shares the nature of the devil, the archetypal murderer, 
And therefore, it should come as no surprise that such a person cannot possibly possess eternal life. He says, finally, hatred is incompatible with spiritual life. So that's the first test. Second test, if you look at verse 16, in the second by this statement, he says, by this you can know love. So, so what's the test? By this we can know love that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And that's a high, high, high standard of love. This is the standard by which love is to be measured and assessed. And if you look back at the teachings of Jesus, this is what Jesus said, right? In, in John's gospel, he, he said that I am the good shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. In, in chapter 15 of John's gospel, Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you should love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. That's a high standard of love. And the implication to the audience, both then and, and today, is this. When you think about love, when, when you say the word love, when you desire to express love, the standard by which you are to compare your words, your thoughts, and your actions is the self-giving sacrificial love of Christ as displayed on the cross. That's the standard. Don't be flippant. Don't be casual about love. Don't take freedom to redefine love. Don't rebrand lust as love. Don't rebrand infatuation as love or selfish indulgence as love. To love means to live every day, every moment with a very real possibility that you may be called to lay down your very life for other people. That is love. And when you begin to let that settle in, that the definition of love is self-sacrifice, it changes the way we start using that word. When I tell my wife I love pizza and I love her in the same sentence, that's a problem. We can't use this word flippantly. When one other way to put it would be to say, love must be prepared to meet the needs of others, whatever the cost in self-sacrifice. By this we know love. That he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And then if you look at verse 17, John offers a more common scenario where love can be lived out. We might all say, you know what, as I think about it, I think I could lay down my life for somebody else. Well, then John says, okay, if, if that's in your heart, then here's another way to live love. Verse 17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees a brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? This is a more rubber meets the road practical way for us to start measuring our love. The same heart motivation, the same love that would compel somebody to lay down their life for somebody else is the same kind of love that would compel us to offer and meet the needs of those in need in our midst. One might be able to boastfully claim a willingness to lay down their life, but the true test to determine if that kind of love resides in them is here. To love those in need in practical ways. I read this week that the world is not in need so much of heroic acts of martyrdom, but in heroic acts of material sacrifice. John's final encouragement is just a simple statement. He says, little children, in verse 18, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Another translation puts it this way. Dear children, let's not merely say we love one another. Let us show the truth by our actions. And if you look at this whole section, it's really about hatred and love. These two things, like John always loves to do, the dualism. Hatred and love. He contrasts the hatred of Cain and the love of Jesus. John Stott, he, he said this about this, this section of Scripture, and I thought it was really helpful. He said, the teaching in this passage is about hatred and love. Hatred characterizes the world whose prototype is Cain. It originates in the devil, issues at murder, and is evident of spiritual death. Love characterizes the church whose prototype is Christ. It originates in God, issues in self-sacrifice, and is evidenced 
of eternal life. So the apostle's first message to us is love. The, the, the mark of the Christian is to love the church, love. Secondly, as we go to verses 19 through 24, the second thing we see is, is that we can have confidence before God. John is saying that we can have confidence before God. And I, it's interesting that he places this text here because I think, it's an, I think it comes after the command to love on purpose. The call to love the way Christ loved? Come on. You know how selfish I am? I mean, in our best days, we're lucky if we, if we love like Christ loves. Often, that battle between flesh and spirit is won by the flesh. At least that's my case. Maybe that's not your case. The call in verses 18 through, or 11 through 18, is to love as Jesus loved, to, to die on behalf of others, to sacrifice on behalf of others. This is a high calling. Who among us? I mean, who among us loves like that every single day? I, not one, I guarantee if I'm honest, it feels impossible when I start to think about it. I mean, there's days when I'm in my office and, and I can think like in the conceptual, it seems beautiful. I remember going through pre-marriage counseling and I remember my, my pastor telling us, you are fully loved by God. Your love cup is 100% filled so you can just empty your love of your wife 100%. It's not a 50-50 proposition. It's a 100-100 proposition. And I was like, Pfft. I'd never heard anybody say that before. I'm like, that is awesome. Why doesn't everyone just have a Christian marriage then? Because it's that easy. Just get loved by Jesus and love freely your spouse. And then I've been married 22 years. My wife would say, often days I have not loved her with that kind of love because I'm selfish. I struggle with sin. And certainly when I look at the world, my heart can be troubled by the ugliness I see around me. But often when I look within, I'm troubled by the ugliness I see there. My life lacks love. And that can be so disheartening. Because I know God calls me to love. I mean, John is so simple. It's like all he's saying, like in five chapters, is love. I mean, I, I, if you want to hear all of 1 John in one sermon, just walk in light and be loved. That's it. And so we got it, Paul. What's next? It's like, yeah, but I've been preaching the same sermon for 20 years because we just don't get it. We're, we're to love, and I, and I know that, and it can be so disheartening because I fail so often to love the way God calls me to love. And here's where we see the first test under the second point. The third by this statement. Look at verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth, and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So what's the test? The test is this. When your heart is heaped with condemnation upon yourself, when guilt and shame overwhelm you, when you look at the lack of congruency between the faith you speak and the life you live, when you're crushed under the weight of self-condemnation, do you turn to God? Or do you turn within? That's the test. Has your heart ever condemned you? Have you looked in the mirror and seen more of Cain than of Christ? Have you looked in the mirror and seen more of selfishness and of self-sacrifice, more of jealousy than joyful generosity? What are we supposed to do when that happens? What are we supposed to do when we're made aware of how selfish we are? John says we're not supposed to look within. We're supposed to look without. He reminds us that our security is not found within, but found in God himself. Our hearts condemn us. And if they do, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and God knows everything. So listen, when your heart can... And maybe this is not your issue. I know there are some people like, I, I, come, you know, I, I come from a guilt, a shame 
culture, maybe my family, the way I think. And so the whole shame, guilt thing is my, is my jam. I, I live that my whole life. Some people don't, don't struggle with that as much. So if that's you, praise God. Thank God he's not giving you that brain. If you're like me, every time you have a, a, like a nano mess up, you have this little tape recorder in your brain. You hit rewind, play, rewind, play, rewind, play, rewind, play. And you just build up reasons to just leap, heap shame upon yourself. And it causes you to spiral. It, 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 it hamstrings your ability to love. It, it, it kills your spiritual life. That's how I live. Maybe you don't. But when your heart condemns you, the answer is not to look deeper within. It's not to change the standards of morality so that your sin suddenly becomes okay. It's not to to redefine love. It's not to abandon the faith or rewrite scripture. No, no, no. We're to look to God. He is our hope when our hearts condemn us. That's what John is saying. We're supposed to say along with the psalmist, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. There's no self-actualization in this equation. And Jesus, or and John rather, is speaking to Christians here. These are men and women who've been born again. He's got that loving pastoral tone, and he's giving assurance to his believing audience that they, that we might have confidence in God and confidence before God. Not a self-confidence, but a God confidence. Our ability to come confidently before God is not in our confidence or our own sense of self-sufficiency. It's entirely rooted in him and in the all-sufficiency of God. So, on those days, rewind, play, rewind, play, rewind, play. When our conscience is informed by, by the, the, the failures of our life, when our conscience is informed by the, the failures of our past, we are to turn to God. We're supposed to inform our hearts and minds by the truth of who God is, not by lies. Our salvation is in Christ and not our own works. Our conduct is empowered by the Holy Spirit and not by self-will. There's unending freedom for the believer. When we get that, there's unending freedom. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We have been declared righteous. We're justified before God. So that means you and I can confidently come before him. And that's what John says in verses 22 and 23. When we're not condemned, we recognize we're not condemned, we can joyfully come before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, he says, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. John makes it clear. Even as he upholds the Christian virtue of love, we are, we are to, the, the total sum of the Christian faith is not simply to love others, right? I think if you, if you were to do a selective reading of, of this letter by John, you might see all these commands to love the brothers, and you might say, oh, that's the total sum of the Christian life, is just to love those around us. But here in verse 23, he makes it clear, that's not the total sum of the Christian life. John has been saying this all along, but now he makes it abundantly and, ex- and explicitly clear. This is the first use of the word believe in 1 John. He'll unpack it more in the, in the following chapters. But he's talking about belief in Jesus and love for others together form the central command of the Christian faith. In Jesus, in whom we are to believe, is the one whom John testifies about. So John, as he started his letter, if you remember, he's an apostle. He's like, listen, we saw him. We heard him. We touched him. We know who he is. Believe in this Jesus. There's all these false teachers at the time of John. They're propping up a different Jesus. He's like, that is a lie. That is a false Christ. We know the real Christ. Believe in that Christ. Believe in Christ, the Son of God, not a false Jesus. Believe in Jesus alone who has the power to overcome sin and death. 
Belief in Jesus who alone has the power to save us from our sins and bring us from darkness into light, into the light of God's presence. We're to believe in Jesus who is more than a moral guide. He is the atoning sacrifice for human sin. Jesus who is our help in times of trouble and temptation, who is our assurance of eternal life after death. This is who we believe in. And when we come to believe in the real Jesus and we're declared righteous, we can confidently come before God in prayer. Verse 22, who, whatever we ask, we can receive from him. We boldly live as God would have us live, courageously doing what pleases him. And so to the Christian today, John says, we have confidence that you are in the truth. Let your hearts be reassured and come before him. And this brings us to the last test of the middle section, the, the fourth, by this statement. By this, you know that he abides in you. What's the test? As as we keep his commandments, John says, we live deeply and surely in him, and he lives in us. It's this, this, this whole picture of abiding. Abiding. If we are abiding in Christ, he, he gives us his spirit. And, and how can we know that we are in Christ? This is John's first use of, of the, the word spirit in the text. Up to this point, John's been talking about the Son and the Father, kind of see them as one. Here we're finally introduced to the Holy Spirit. And in John's desire to give assurance to his believing audience... What he does is he upholds the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer as the proof of God's abiding. In other words, John says, the person who has saving faith in Jesus, who selflessly is loving others, thus keeping the command of God, that person has the assurance of the Holy Spirit. And God abides in him and saves him. This is the apostle's message. That we are to love, because that's the mark of the Christian, so love. We're to have confidence to come before God. So be confident and come before God. Not looking at self, but looking at him. And finally, the last thing we see is John encourages his audience to know error and to know the truth. Know false teachings and know true teachings. Be able to discern the difference. Embrace truth. Know error and know truth. In other words, be an active listener. The very thing you're doing right now, pay attention to what's being said about God by people who claim to speak for God. Listen to the teaching. Don't tune out. Don't count ceiling tiles or the bald spot in the person in front of you. We're to think critically about what people are saying about God. When you gather in this place on a Sunday morning and you sit under the preached word or the word sung, we have to evaluate that to make sure it's so. Because today in our world, there are so many people saying so many things. And of course, there's obvious false prophets. I mean, most of us can point them out. That are saying awful things about Jesus, antagonistic things about Jesus. There's false religions that, 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 that are clearly opposed to, to Christianity. But then there's some stuff that's maybe a little bit more fuzzy, right? There's this spiritualists that exist in the world around us. I mean, I've walked through Ashland... And I've walked in the stores of Ashland. And I'm not kidding you. I walked with my daughter maybe like four months ago. And every single store I saw in Ashland had some sort of a, a device, like a, a Ouija board or some tarot cards or a book about the occult. It was insane, the whole city. And this is this dangerous teaching that it's all spirituality. They may not exclusively deny Jesus. They'll say he's one of many ways. It's happening all around us. There's secularists who, who are spiritualizing humanity. And the one that's most dangerous are the wolves in sheep's clothing who, who claim the name of Jesus. They're inside our churches. They're seeking to devour and lead many astray like what was happening in the time of John. And this is who John seems to be concerned about. They're counterfeits. They're dressing up errors, truth, or liars. 
They're confessing a false Christ. They're bringing a spirit of lies and destruction into the church. They're antichrist in every way. And as you sit here today and listen to what I say, you do evaluate the things I say. Is Paul speaking in error or is he speaking in truth? I beg of you, hold me accountable. We are to engage with what is being said about truth. We're to test it. Look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. This is the first test of the final section, the fifth by this statement. Verse 2, by this, you know the Spirit of God. What's the test? Well, we're to be testing what preachers have to say about Jesus. We're not to be passive about this. At the time of this letter, there were some preachers that were saying audacious things about Jesus. They were saying that he did not come in the flesh, and the humanity of Jesus was under attack. Their preaching of Jesus was reduced to the immaterial. They were saying things like, hey, pick up on the spirit of Jesus, but let's deny the humanity of Jesus. It doesn't matter what he said when he was here physically. We just need to emulate his morality. And this is a false teaching. It was a heresy. It's the very beginnings of Gnosticism, which divided the church in the second century. They devalued the material in favor of the immaterial. These false teachers were changing and redefining Jesus. They were perverting the teachings of Christ. They said spiritual, spiritual-like things, Christian-like things, but they were wrong in what they said. It was perversion, it was evil, and it was leading people astray. You want to know how to know if something's false teaching? I have three simple rules. I probably shared this with you in the past, but remember these. When you're evaluating teaching, it's got to check to see if it, it lines up with Scripture. But very generically, is, is the teaching demoting God in any way? Is it making God smaller? Is it elevating man? And is it claiming to have a secret knowledge? If you it, just keep that on your, when you're listening to a new teacher, is he demoting God? Is he elevating man? Is he claimed to have a secret knowledge? Those are clear indicators that the teaching is false. And so here in this time, as the world was being, uh, the church was being divided by this false teaching, John is telling us that Jesus isn't some immaterial spirit. These people were building a Jesus of their own making, and John was saying, that's not the Jesus I saw or heard or touched. That's a false Christ. Christianity rests on a very specific set of claims made by the physical Jesus and those who witnessed him, all of which is rooted in datable history. This is the truth about our faith. John has said clearly in this letter that he saw Jesus. He heard Jesus. He touched him. The physical Jesus. And he told us in this letter that one day Jesus physically is going to return. And one day, the physical world will be made new. Creation will be renewed. This is our hope. This presses up against the immaterial teachings of Jesus of these false teachers of the day. What was happening here in the first century happens today as well. People still maybe not quite in the same way. We still have a tendency to construct a Jesus in our own making. There's false teachers that are constructing a Jesus in their own making in churches all across the country. They'll say, give me the Jesus that gives me success, but keep the Jesus that calls me to suffer out of the equation. They'll say, give me Jesus that assures prosperity, but you can keep the Jesus that tells me to give it all away and follow him. Say, give me the Jesus that will help me be a social reformer, but keep the Jesus that confronts me in my sin. 
and calls me to confess and repent. I heard this week that if the Jesus you know always confirms your ideas and never challenges your view in, the way, in ways that cause you to change your life, then you better wonder if you really are holding on to the real Jesus. Being a, being a preacher is such an odd thing. I didn't plan on this life. I didn't. I was a teacher. I was supposed to coach. I was going to have the summers off. I was going to backpack all summer. It was going to be awesome. And then God called me to ministry, and I did the giant bait and switch on my wife, and she got stuck with a pastor. Never planned on that. But being a, a preacher is a weird thing, especially in a smaller community, but even in a large community. You live in a fishbowl, and it's weird raising kids in a fishbowl. But I, I remember back before I was a pastor, I remember how, how, how I would talk about my church when I was in the community, and I remember the questions people would ask. And, and I know what happens when people talk about church. Hey, how's, how's your church? Where do you go? I go to Heritage Christian Fellowship. Oh, I heard you have a new pastor. Yeah, I heard he talks really fast. Yeah, he does. And <laughs> he's from Wisconsin. All that sort of, likes the mountains, I think. That's all he ever talks about. I, I know how those conversations go. And I certainly can, you know, and I, listen, I don't want to be a jerk, right? I, I want to be likable because I'm a human being. I want you to like me. Um, and that, you know, and my sinful nature wants to be liked. And that goes back to a bunch of stuff. But at the end of the day, it's like, I, I mean, honestly, I... I could care less if you like me. I want you to like me. But I know, like, but, because I know how we tend to evaluate pastors. Because I know how I've evaluated pastors. We say things like, um, we, we, have, we elevate what we like about them as a human, and we don't talk about their teaching. You know what I'm saying? And this concerns me a little bit. We assess the wrong things. Hey, is he personal? Is he funny? Is he engaging? What's he look like? Is he a dynamic preacher? Does he, does he use notes? Doesn't he use notes? What's he like? And... And I'm dealing with this conviction because I want to be liked. And I don't want to be boring to be boring. But the longer I, I do pastoral ministry and the longer I preach, the more I realize, like, I just got to disappear, man. I just need to decrease. God needs to increase. I, I, I need to just stay behind this word. I need to let this word go forth. And, and there's, even, there's even preachers that won't even leave the pulpit because they say if you leave the pulpit, you're stepping outside of the word and you're stepping outside of the authority that you're even standing on the stage for. And I'm dealing with this conviction the older I get. It's like, how do I continue to decrease that Christ can increase, that I can preach him to my people? Because you don't need to know my funny stories. You don't. I know they're helpful. Maybe they help illuminate the gospel. I want to be a good communicator. But you, you need Jesus. You don't need Paul. And I, and I just think about the way we think about preaching and teachers. And John is begging us to evaluate the messages we hear. Not if he's good looking or if he's funny or she's dynamic. But do they uphold Jesus, the real Jesus? That's the thing. And he calls us to discern the words of the preacher. We're to make a value judgment on the words that are spoken on behalf of God. That's our job as Christians. And every pastor claims to speak on behalf of God. People have been claiming to speak on behalf of God since Genesis chapter 3. Is that really what God said? Remember that? People have been filling in the blank ever since with their own thoughts. The scripture is a line. This is our conviction. The scripture is a line. God is communicating something through his word, and it forms a line. False teachers either go above the line or go below the line. They add works to the scripture, or they delete or hang off or amputate the things that are being said. Our job as Christians is to stay on the line of Scripture, to never go above, never go below, never add to or take away from, but to live on the line of Scripture. The job of the preacher is to uphold the line of Scripture for the people of God to respond in obedience to. That's our job. We're held to the line. Nothing more, nothing less. I sometimes watch preachers on television or I listen to worship music or I, I read Christian authors and oftentimes I'm very encouraged 
because there's some very gifted, godly people that have been very faithful. Oftentimes, I throw my shoe at the television because it's so frustrating. Like, that is not the truth. And there are millions who are lining up behind false teachers. It's terrifying. In this text, there are many people who are claiming to speak for God, and they were empowered by Satan. There are bad preachers in the world today, not empowered by God, but empowered by Satan. So we need to recognize that not all pastors convey the truth. Not all ministries are empowered by God. And we are to have nothing to do with false teachers. That's what John's final encouragement to us is here today. Look what he says in verses 4 and 5. Again, the pastoral tone. The pastoral tone of the people he loves. He's not just being meany here. He's like, I care for you. Little children. So much is at stake here. Little children, you are from God. And have overcome them, these false teachers. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore they speak of the world, and the world listens to them. And finally we come to the last by this statement, the last test of our text. By this, in verse 6, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. What is this final test? The author of our text says, we belong to God. John says, listen, they didn't know him like I knew him. I saw him, touched him, heard him. I'm speaking on behalf of God. We belong to God. Unlike those false teachers who are of the devil. And John, as one of the apostles who belongs to God, he he writes with authority, the authority of an apostle, and he says those who, who know God listen to us because we have authority on this matter. That's what the scriptures are. It is the apostolic word. It's the authority of the apostles. And and those who do not belong to God don't listen to us. Again, he's saying, listen. Don't just hear the message. Listen. And this is how we know if someone has the spirit of truth or the spirit of deception, he says. Those who don't listen don't have the truth. Those who abandon the apostolic proclamation, the words of scripture, those who don't put themselves under the authority of God's word, they're false. They're bringing in other sources. It's it's false teachers. Theirs is a spirit of deception. We as Christians are to be like those in Berea in Acts chapter 17. As Paul went into Berea to proclaim the good news, we read in Acts 17 verses 11 through 12, the people of Berea were were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scripture day to day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. And as a result, many Jews believed as did many of the prominent Greek men and women. We are to search the scriptures to see if what is taught is so. That's our job as Christians. So that's what I want to leave you with today. This is the apostles' message. God is telling us through John today that, that, that love is the mark of the Christian. So love. He is telling us today that we can have confidence before God. Self-condemnation doesn't belong here. It's been nailed to the cross. Come before God in confidence, Christian. He's telling us no error and no truth and embrace and live in the truth. Can you imagine what it would look like if in our church we lived these three things out to the fullness? Can you imagine how revolutionary it would be as the onlooking world saw a body of men and women who, who, who loved with this self-sacrificing love as a way of life? Can you imagine what would happen if, if an army of, of prayer warriors confidently came before God, interceding on behalf of their family and their city and others? What would, well, how God might move through that? Can you imagine if, as we sought the scriptures, if we embraced the truth and lived in light of the truth and saved others from falling into the trap of false teachings? Can you imagine 
So today we're going to, I'm going to pray and I'm going to dismiss. We're going to change up order of service a little bit. But as I pray for you and as we get ready to leave, I want you to leave today in love. I want you to leave in confidence. And I want you to leave in the truth. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm so thankful for the opportunity you give us to gather in this place today. God, I'm thankful for this word. It's complex and challenging at times. But God, I'm thankful that you give us understanding by your spirit. We can understand what it is you're saying to us today. So God, my prayer is as a church, God, as we, as we continue to try to, to, to grow, uh, become the church you desire for us to be collectively, God, I pray that you would do whatever you got to do by the power of your spirit in my life and in the lives of the men and women of this church, God, and us collectively. God, help us love the way you've called us to love. God, help us to love in that self-sacrificing way that you've called us to. God, may that be the marker of your church, the marker of this church, and the marker of these families and individuals in this room. And God, I'm thinking of those who struggle with shame. Maybe there's some unconfessed sin that needs to be confessed today in this place. I'm so thankful to know, God, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So God, would you lead us in confession as you bring, as you bring conviction into our hearts? And God, as we confess those sins, God, as we look to the cross and recognize that our sins have been overcome on the cross, God, would you put not self-confidence, but God-confidence into our hearts to boldly approach you in humility. God, as we pray and seek to worship you, God, and I pray that you would give us a heart to discern the truth from error. And God, help us to know what the truth is, and God, help us to reject the errors that are existing within the Christian world. God, help, help our church be a, a, a light in this valley, God, and other great churches in our valley that are proclaiming the truth. God, may you raise up truth-proclaiming, gospel-proclaiming, Jesus-loving churches in this valley, God, so that those 170,000 men and women who are lost in darkness would not get enticed away into false teachings, but would come and encounter the living God in this place. God, help us leave in love today. Help us leave in confidence today. God, help us leave in the truth. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're doing things a little bit differently today. We're just going to have you send you out right now. And I want to remind you, we always encourage men and women to stick around and talk, shake hands, get to know one another. If you can stack a chair in the process, that's great. But just because chairs are being stacked doesn't mean we want you to rush out. We want you to stay around. If you're new, please check out. We're going to be right here in the little coffee shop, right here where the windows are in the hallway for our pastor's meet and greet. We'd love to have a chance to meet you after the service in about 10 minutes or so. Let me see. Why don't you go ahead and stand up, and I'll send you out today with Ephesians 3, verses 17 through 19. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen, church. You're dismissed. The set me free. I'm happy to be in the truth. And I will daily.